Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin? And how did they end? Let's find out on this episode of Fan of History. Hello, Dan. Hello, Bernie. We are still in the 620s BC and I can't really leave Assyria yet. We ended last episode with Nabopolassar in control of Babylonia. But Sin Ishkun is the Assyrian king now. And he'll remain so until the very end. We know a lot more about him than we know about his brother who we killed off in the last episode. Right. We have a lot of uh, uh, commemorative inscriptions from Sinchara Ishkun. Hmm. He uh, restored the building of Alabaster at Nineveh, which is probably the west wing of Sennacherib's southwest palace. He worked on the Nabu temple in Ashur, and he had a palace in Kala. And in the northwest palace in Kala, they found the economic text dated to this time. And in his inscriptions, he talks about the enemies of Assyria who would not accept my sovereignty. Hmm. And this is perhaps a hint that his uh, succession was contested in 627 by his brother, but also by other forces. And the things I read in Cambridge Ancient History imply we don't know the year he is really in control of Assyria, but they make a good case for 623. Okay. He also talks about that he was chosen by the gods for sovereignty instead of his twin brother. Hmm. But this could also be read at as from amongst his brothers. Yeah, that twin word is that's what, when I actually, the one time Karen Radner responded to an email, right, thinks I'm a stalker. She said that the word twin, you know, that's, that word is, you know, some people think it means twin and some it means like you said, so. Oh, so it, it could be a, just a brother. 
Yeah, yeah, because she says she says that Shamashuma Ukin and Asher Banapal were twins. Hmm. She's the only one that I've heard ever say that. Okay, so that's that's a problematic word in the language. Yeah. We know that Asher Banipal was married while he was the crown prince. And that was a long time ago now. That was before 669. Yeah. But uh, there is still the case that Sinchar Ishkun was the real crown prince and that the, the eunuch stuff and the things was a, a civil war. Yeah, and then he was a, maybe the kid was a minor and, you know, he just took over then. But finally he got control of things. Uh, we do have a note from 627 saying that uh, before the death of his father, Sincharishkun commanded troops, which indicates then that he could have been the crown prince. Mm-hmm. And maybe the eunuch was a good general, and not having him wasn't a good thing either, you know? Usually the, the chief eunuch was a general, you know? A lot of kings have a lot of good good uh, eunuchs for generals, and now he's gone. And it's funny that you said they're building all these, you know, he's fixing these this temple and fixing up this palace. In the meantime, there's this huge war going on. He's going to lose the whole empire. Should we build in walls? But in the end, he, sh- he chooses to uh, cement his hold on Assyria and give up Babylonia. Yeah. So when, when we leave him at the end of this episode, Sincharishkun is in control of Assyria and Abuplasar is in control of Babylonia. Right, gotcha. There are pockets of resistance in Babylonia and they will go on until the sixth tens. But Nabopolassar will deal with them shortly. All right. So that's where we leave the Assyrians. Okay. And then I think we need to talk about all the other actors in the area, which will all be, uh, they will all be relevant for the 610s. Okay. Yeah, for sure. And there was the, the fall of the Scythian kingdom in 625 uh, at uh, right south of Lake Ermia. And this was an important Assyrian ally. They were destroyed by the Medes. And this, of course, increases the power of the Medes. It also releases a lot of Scythians to go rampaging everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. They were, um, and they were, you know, they're Scythians and they were, like we said before, but they're probably, there's different kingdoms and different kings and different parts of them. But Sincharishkun has a super strong ally. Who is it? Semedicus. Oh, Amazing, isn't it? The pharaoh, his the 26th dynasty was put in place by the Assyrians, and he has been having a ball in Egypt. He has brought all these Greeks, he gets 10% tax from them, he can beat up the Nubians with Greek mercenaries. He is he's ruling Egypt from 664 to 610. Wow. He's the pharaoh for 54 years, which sounds almost unbelievable. And, you know, because he's from the north and then he's got all these, like, you know, Greek ways about him and stuff. It's almost like it's almost like an outsider's ruling Egypt, you know, especially he's from the Delta. He's not like, you know, one of the real mystical Egyptians from the south. But compared to the Nubians or the Libyans, he is uh, very Egyptian. Yeah, I guess so. And that's what he's telling people in his propaganda. He's Egyptian and maybe in like, you know, the way he looks and all and acts, but he really acts more like a not, like a globalist, as they may say. <laughs> and Semedicus has been uh, having a very nice time in Egypt during the reign of Ashurbanipal. But now, when the Assyrian Empire starts to crumble, he becomes a really loyal ally. And he sort yeah. of remembers his uh, family's oaths to the Assyrians or something, because he will do a lot of things 
to protect the Assyrians. Yeah, for sure, which we find out in the next couple of decades, for sure. It's kind of like they're trying to preserve the balance of power, too, you know? Yes, and this is a new superpower. It's after the fall, after Assyria has been diminished, maybe Samedicus is the most powerful ruler in the area. Yeah, true, good point. But he has an invasion by Sidians. Sometimes between 623 and 616, the Sidians rampage through the Levant and they reach Palestine, where Samedicus has to deal with them. And the story is that he deals with them by just paying them a lot of money. Yeah, that's what Scythians like. They're like raiders. So no Scythian invasion of Egypt, which is good. And now Samedicus has time to gather his Greek mercenaries and his soldiers and maybe do something useful in the next decade. True. But he's incredibly old at this point. Yeah, he must be. Yeah, you're right. Neko was his father. I mean, with the Greeks there would have helped, but boy, if those Scythians got through, they would have rampaged in Egypt. And I don't think there is uh, there's anything mentioning that the Scythians were in Judah. Yeah, I, I know that whole thing must be some kind of raid. I don't know. I think, um, too, though, how would they even eat, fed their horses in Egypt? I don't know. It would have been a rough. <laughs> you know? So I wanted to talk a bit more about Josiah, okay. the king of Judah. Also a guy with a very long reign. Yeah, like very long. 640 to 609, but these mm-hmm. dates are, of course, problematic. He was a child when he started, but still. Yeah, so he's not uh, super old like Samaritus. Right. The problem with Josiah is that um, nobody talks about him. The Assyrians <laughs> don't talk about him. No. The Egyptians don't talk about him. Babylonia doesn't talk about him. Only the Bible talks about him. Because, you know, in all honesty, he wasn't very important in the, in the scope of things happening in the politics today. I mean, it will be like some small country around, you know, here today, you know, thousands of years from now has the global religion after them. But at the time now, we who? <laughs> but we don't even have any archaeological evidence. There's no inscriptions bearing his name. And he ruled Judah for 31 years. Yeah. Amazing. I didn't realize we didn't even have any archaeological evidence on Josiah. Interesting. That's a bit strange. Yeah. But he also now sees the power vacuum when Assyria withdraws, and uh, maybe he can do something useful in the next decade as well. Maybe. <laughs> There's something about the kings of Judah, man. They always make the wrong choice. <laughs> and remember that if you read the Bible, we know that Josiah has the Ark of the Covenant still. Oh, does he? That's good. If the Egyptians didn't steal it in the 930s, as we talked about in a very, very old episode. You have to be careful with the Ark of the Covenant. You know, it causes hemorrhoids if you get some tears sick. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, I also wanted to mention the uh, Urartians. Poor bastards. Poor Urartu. <laughs> so all they've been trying to do, they have been there for so long in the mountains north of Assyria. They have built all these mighty fortresses and roads and like a mini Assyria. At, uh, and at this time, they are not enemies of the Assyrians. Because they have so many other problems. Right. They're a buffer state, basically. They always kind of, you know, now their buffer's being buffed. And it's incredibly hard to date anything in Urartu at this point. Yeah, it's hard to meet Urartu and girls, too. So dating is definitely tough. <laughs> Urartu will survive the fall of the Assyrian Empire, but not for long. Uh, Saduri the third is probably the king okay. of Urartu. 
and maybe he's replaced by his son Rusa the Third in 620. But there is an inscription by Rusa the Third mentioning his father hmm. as Arimina, hmm. which is a very weird name. Yeah, never saw a name like that. So there's a lot of possibilities here that Arimina was the king before him after Sarduri the Third and thus ruled in the 620s in Urartu. Or maybe Rusa III established a new dynasty and his father wasn't a king. Mm-hmm. And there's Cimmerians been in, been messing around in there for decades already. Yes, and the Scythians, and yeah. the Manians, and the Medes. Yeah, everybody from the steppes is just heading in there, is just attacking the Urartans. They're just pushing them, just getting pushed. You know what it probably is? It's probably because of the chin. The chin are pushing those barbarians that way and they're move, moving all the way to Urartu. Oh no, walls in China, let's go to Urartu. <laughs> you know, it's like a domino effect. There are more walls in Urartu than in China at this point. I know. Then I wanted to mention Cyrus of Persia. Yeah? It's not Cyrus the Great. Oh. It's Cyrus the First of okay. Persia, the king of Anshan. Mm-hmm. Uh, this guy is incredibly hard to date. Uh, actually, his reign starts in 600 or 652, yeah. according to different sources. Yeah. It's like, that that doesn't compute at all. They're real hard. Yeah, you're right. But he is an early member of the Akinamid. Akinamid? Yeah, something like that. Dynasty, which is the Great Dynasty, yeah. where Cyrus the Great will come from. And... Uh, so he's the king of Anshan. He has been an Assyrian vassal for a long time. He has been uh, trying to stop being an Assyrian uh, vassal at some point. Didn't go very well. Yeah. So when Ashurbanipal dies, he uh, continues paying tribute to first Ashur Etililani and then to Sincharishkun. Okay. Because uh, he needs the Assyrians as well. Yeah. Because he has a bigger problem. Cyaxarus of media because uh-huh. the Medes they overran the Scythians and now they're getting really powerful they have thrown off the Assyrian joke at this point I think that they they come I think that they finally um, sort of combined yes but at this point they seem to not have combined yet I mean they, they were getting the, the Herodotus says the five tribes this is sort of the time I remember it's like you said with the dating you get like 650 and you get 600 it's hard to say that the, the, you know the the magi we talked about real quick in the beginning. Those were their Medes. That were they were a tribe of the Medes. Yeah, but it seems that the Persians are not under control of the Medes yet. Okay, but uh, and they will be, as far as I know now. I look into this much closer in the six tens, but they don't seem to be present at the final battle of Assyria. Okay, right. I, I just meant the Medes are getting together and not so then the Persians have an issue with them and that's why the Scythians the Medes I think finally realize they can't be these loose confederation with all these people keep coming beating them up exactly They're, the Medes are like sort of in between like farming and city people sort of and the uh, steppe people because they have they were they were good horsemen they, you know they had horses and they were you know they were warriors too so you know getting them together was probably a good idea for them Cyrus is Eventually succeeded at some point by his son Cambyses the first, and his son is Cyrus the Great. So we are getting pretty close to Cyrus. 
It's great, amazing, right? Isn't it? When you think about like we're we feel so far back from Cyrus, but his grandfather's around now. But uh, the Persian sources are very bad at this point. Yeah. So there's a lot, and these dates that you you don't know when he actually reigned, and maybe his father can buy this very late in life and died really old. But it seems weird. Yeah, that would seem odd, especially if he was his firstborn. And maybe there is an Assyrian mention of Kuras, which people take to be Cyrus. Oh. But it it could be that they are two different people. Yeah. But we'll talk more about the Persians. Oof. Indeed we will. So let's go to... Is this the real pronunciation in English? Cyaxerus? I think so. Cyaxerus. That sounds good. The king of media. He threw out the Scythians. And now the world is open to him. Way to go, Cyaxerus. And interestingly, he is... The great-grandfather of Cyrus the Great. Amazing. Because there will be a joining of houses. Yeah, there's some good stories in there. <laughs> you guys probably, some of them know them. And Cyrus will be with us for a long time because he will be ruling the Medes until 585. Okay. So this is the, the leader of the Medes for all upcoming things for a long time. He's going to have some adventures. Jerusalem will even fall before uh, Cyrus does. I was thinking the same exact thing. The, his relationship to the Scythians uh, seems to be complicated mm-hmm. because uh, after he overthrew the Scythians, he seems to have Scythians in his service. Yes. So he is working some good uh, diplomacy here. Yeah, the Scythians were like tribes too, you know. I mean, it reminds me a lot of the, you know, when you hear. If you study like the colonies in America and the Indian tribes, and then, you know, they work the tribes against each other. And they, but they were all, you know, a certain way, like they took scalps. The Scythians took scalps. That was like a thing they did. They scalped people. But, you know, doesn't mean that one tribe can't be against another tribe. I have to mention how he overthrew the Scythians. Oh, tell me. It wasn't a battle. He had been a loyal uh, subject of the Scythians for some time. Okay. And then he invited them to a party. That's right. Tell me. Yes. <laughs> this is all quite legendary then, and we don't, we're not sure this happened. But it was the Red Wedding. Yes. He murdered all of the Scythian rulers after getting them drunk. Yes. Because that's the only way you could beat Scythians, because there are badasses. And the legends also tell that Cyaxerus, as soon as he gained power in media, he started preparing for the final conflict. He knew how much his people had suffered at the Syrian hands. Yes. And he wanted to get rid of the empire. So this is the other great smith of the Assyrian Armageddon. Yeah. So as soon as he starts ruling, he organizes the army. The the Medes have been barbarians all this time. But now there is a regular army. He steals the model from the Assyrians and also from the Urartians, who stole it from the Assyrians. Yes. And of course, he's fighting Urartu as well. But now he has a regular army, which is a lot better than what the Medes had earlier. And that's where we leave him in 620. Yeah. building a new superpower in Iran. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty great. Yeah, they're, they're, the Assyrians should be... Uh cranking up their intelligence services now and marrying off people and not be building palaces. They should be 
really looking out. But I, I remember, I, swear, I know what I want to say. I, I, before we did the podcast together and I used to listen to it, and then I would listen. Then before we did, I listened a lot. And I was so many episodes you said, you would say, and then what did they happen? They went and beat up on the Meads. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and now it's time for revenge. Exactly. Like so many episodes. Like, and today, and now the Assyrians, guess where they went? To beat up some Meads. <laughs> and now the Meads will come for them. Yep. Like the Patriots and the Bills. You can't keep doing it. You're going to come back. Do you even remember the Manians? Yeah, he used to beat up on them too. And they're the people that they have a lot of horses as well. Yes, and they're also in the, that Urartian, uh, Scythian, Median, Persian mess, yep. which is Iran. Yep, probably Zoroastrians. And they will try to resist the Medes Okay. at this point, but uh, they are not as powerful. And maybe they have a king called Uali at this point. All right. Or maybe not. And that's yeah. all I can say about the Manians. Yeah, very loose confederations a lot of these were. And then I will jump to an unexpected place. Where? Italy. Oh! Remember that I promised that the Romans will enter our narrative in 616 BC. That is the next decade. I know. You're gonna, I'm going to need some help from you. But we still have legendary kings doing legendary... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Stuff. And I will make the case that Rome enters history as an Etruscan city in 616 BC. So now I want to talk about the Etruscans. Please. The Etruscans have been under Greek influence for a long time, just like the Romans later. So the Greeks have been colonizing nearby, traveling by sea, talking to the Etruscans, teaching them stuff. Mm -hmm. It seems that the the territory of the Etruscan civilization was at its maximum around 750 BC. Okay. And it was loosely organized in three confederacies of cities. Etruria, that is Tuscany, Latium, and Umbria. Of the Po Valley with the Eastern Alps and Campania. Okay. But they will start to go into League of Twelve Cities. 
12 Etruscan cities all independent were working together. And that's how we will encounter them in 616 BC. Okay. Hesiod, you know, our man. I like Hesiod, yeah. Yeah, he is the first Greek author to mention the Etruscans. Okay. He calls him the Tyrrhenians, the Tyrrhenian Sea, you know. The, oh, the yes, right, Tyrrhen. right. And he says that they are uh, residing in central Italy alongside the Latins, which is probably true. Well, whereas the, the Latins are barbarians compared to the Etruscans, who have a fairly uh, civilized society. Yeah. Except for the gladiator games and uh, those things. And a language we still cannot read. Mm-hmm. Homer also mentions them. Some people think that they were the Trojans, you know? That's sort of the myth, right? Because the Romans are the Trojans, and if the Romans are the Etruscans... Yes, but they, they are not. We know that since 2013 when we did DNA studies on Etruscans. Yeah. So they are indigenous to... Uh, and we've been talking about uh, the Villanovans since the start of this podcast. Yeah. They are the Villanovans. And they're indigenous to Italy. Uh, the, the myth that they come from the East actually appears later, after the 6th century. Uh, Homer mentions them and just says that they are pirates. Ah. So they maybe they had seafaring as well. I'm sure, yeah. And just think about just what we said about the horned helmet. And it's about from this time, you know, this ninth century, whatever. And then, you know, that the Phoenicians are probably sailing around there and the Etruscans. And I don't think the Etruscans were seafarers because if they were, the Romans would have been better at naval warfare. <laughs> they suck at it. Yeah, that's true. But they, I bet they were trading like with Sardinia and Corsica and I know all that area there. Mm, funny that you mentioned Sardinia. I will talk about Sardinia very shortly. And it has no Etruscans. No, but it has. But Sardinia is a cool little place. Yeah, we'll go, I'll wait for you to talk about it. So formerly the Etruscans are in the Orientalize, Orientalizing period, the Middle Orientalizing period, which ends in 625 BC okay. and gives way to the later Orientalizing period. <laughs> but I think the Etruscans are land-based and they get their... They see things from the Greeks. And didn't, didn't they have um, aqueducts too? Didn't they teach the Romans how to build aqueducts? Or they were Romans and they would already know? I do not know. Yeah, I think so. I have a neighbor who's a, he's like a, he's a, he's 80 years old, but you wouldn't think of it. He's a riot. And we were sitting with him one day and he goes, he's an Italian guy. And he goes, whatever happened to the Etruscans? <laughs> and so I looked it up and they're very interesting. As they basically become assimilated by the Romans yeah. later. They're also into, um, augury which is like uh, the bird you know like they would um read portents in the sky by the way the patterns of birds yeah basically all the weird things in roman society comes from the etruscans perfect everything greek everything that isn't greek comes from the etruscans gotcha so we have greeks traveling all over the mediterranean yeah but there is another power another power of great seafaring ability mm-hmm. Carthage. oh god yeah and Phoenicia, but the power center of Phoenicia is now Carthage. Yeah. And stuff is hard to date in Carthage at this point because yes. the conflicts with the Greeks haven't really begun yet. They will. But um, there seems to be a Carthaginian colony in Sardinia. Oh. But it's extreme. The first archaeological finds from like anybody who is not from there. Is from uh, is Phoenician finds, but they are not many. 
Oh, okay. I hear what you're saying. Anybody that's not from there is right. So the Phoenicians are all over that area. Right. So it seems that Carthage actually, or Phoenicia, had a, a colony in Sardinia. Yeah, Sardinia was definitely its own little world. That's where those helmets, I, those helmets are Sardinian helmets. I have, I've seen, before I ever saw that picture, I saw Sardinian helmets and they look just like that. But there is another much more important place that the Carthaginians are all over at this point. Where? Spain. Oh. I don't know if the Greeks are around there, but if the Greeks are around, they are not a huge thing. Yeah, not yet. Not as a huge thing, anyway. That's all the way to the end of the world. You know, that's the gates of Hercules once you hit the, you know, the Barack of Gibraltar over there. Um, I don't know if you, if I ever told you this, but my working plan is to retire in Sardinia. Oh, never yeah. been there. Not me neither, but I'm liking it. You could come visit me. We could do a live podcast from Sardinia. That's my plan. Phoenician founds. hundred percent. But there's so many archaeological sites there. The Nergotic, Nergogic. Um, they're, they're, they don't know what they are. They, they could have been one of the sea peoples. There's a lot of cool stuff. And it's beautiful there, too. Coming from where we, I come from, Northeast United States, and you, Sweden, Sardinia is a freaking paradise, weather-wise. Remember, we mentioned back in the 900s BC that there were Phoenicians in Spain already. But they have been busy, and the Greeks have noticed this as well. Mm-hmm. So there is a Greek notice in 630 BC that there, there's a cargo of silver coming in from Spain. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, there's a lot of mines in Spain. Mm-hmm. And later Strabo uh, informs us that the Phoenicians have a monop- monopoly on Spanish mines. Mm-hmm. I could believe that. There is mining going on in Spain. And they probably like like um, like when we did the episode on the you know we talked with the Rob Mailhammer, like they probably had a trading point port there and had the mines and they were sort of the ruling class, but they didn't really colonize it. Exactly. Right. So there are two very good rivers to get far into Spain mm-hmm. that the uh, Carthaginians used. Okay. And they could get like fifty or eighty-five kilometers inland, and we we find a lot of Phoenician. Uh, archaeology stuff yeah there. And that's all they needed and they are there for the mining yes but eventually they will colonize spain but uh, of course the phoenicians or the carthaginians rather are already at this point operating like a company they are only interested in profit yeah they don't care about conquest right as much as other cultures they care about profit and there right. is profit in spain Yes. Maybe it's all those baby sacrifices. They didn't have a giant population explosion. The baby sacrifices are a fact. Yeah. But I don't know if they occurred this early. I probably did because the Phoenicians did it. We know from the Bible and then the Carthaginians, you know, I, they, I mean, I don't know that they were killing all their babies, but I would, I, in my opinion, they probably was already a thing. But I don't think that's why they didn't. But also, there was probably a lot of room in Africa there to expand. You know, just think of the Greeks. They would just constantly run out of room and they would have to move out. But these guys were just, they were business people. It's kind of like the, um, maybe like the Portuguese back in the day, you know, the age of discovery. The Carthaginians are, are never interested in going inland in Africa. So they're right. seafarers. Um, they do have, we have a clear evidence of Phoenician settlements in uh, Malaga in 700 B.C., Okay. And this Spanish silver shows up all over the Mediterranean, 
even in uh, with the Etruscans, huh. they seem to import silver from Phoenicia. Again, the world is connected, very connected. It's hard at this point to know if we should talk about Carthage or the Phoenicians, but all of this comes mainly from Carthage. That is at least my impression. Yeah. Some historians just call it Phoenician. They'll keep calling Carthage the Phoenicians like through the, through like way longer, you know? And we do know that they said Phoenicians would not, would not attack Carthage during the Persian Empire. The Phoenician sailors refused to. And uh, thus Carthage was safe. Yeah. So I, you know, they're probably the same language. And, you know, and maybe like I said, I think I said it before, maybe like New York and, I should say like, you know, yeah, New York and London, let's say, you know, like we're, we're, we still speak the same language. We're sort of the United States and England is sort of like, you know, two different countries, but you don't see the United States invade in England. We talk a lot about uh, all the colonies, the Greek, uh, the Greek sets up, but the Carthage is by far the most successful colony anybody ever set up no in kidding. the Mediterranean. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's like it's like New York, you know, it's like, well, I'm gonna make the biggest city there is, for sure. Yeah, it will be. I mean, it's good that you get into it now because it's you know, we don't have any dates on things, but we can't just have this massive Carthaginian, you know, event and then say, Ah, oh, here they came out of nowhere. We also find uh, Carthaginians in Portugal. Really? Yes. So they went into the Atlantic and went up the coast. Right. So then that's how we know that they were probably in Germany there, like that episode we did, that they were probably in, in that area. And in and your, and your place, they came right around. And there is a find of uh, Irish spearheads in Spain and Irish cauldrons in Spain. Really? I remember that the, most, uh, the best tin mines were in Britain. I do remember that too. Yes, and it's likely that the Cartaginians are actually trading with, with the British Isles. What kind of trip is that, do you think, on one of those ships? Well, I guess it shows that the Phoenicians are the best seafarers of For this sure. time. I mean, how long would it take? And God, the danger of being in a ship like that and just with oars in the Atlantic? Wow. In the 4th century AD, okay. there is a work, Festus Avinius Ora Maritima, where they make a lot of claims about how far the Carthaginians went into the Atlantic. Hmm. But um, we'll uh, come back to that when we talk about Hanno the Navigator, oh, okay. who perhaps circumnavigated Africa yeah. and also invented the, world, the word gorilla. Uh, I was just thinking about the gorillas. Don't spoil it. That's a great story, isn't it? <laughs> yes. I love we that. won't spoil the, uh, the gorillas. Yeah, that's awesome. So, and uh, yeah, I'll end with uh, reminding you that uh, a small city-state in Italy will enter our story in the next decade. It's Rome! Yeah. 616 BC, with an Etruscan as a king. I'm going to have to do a lot of research, because I haven't even got touched on that. I've only had the um, mystical kings, which Dan doesn't let me talk about. <laughs> No, let's not talk about them. This is a real king. Yeah. Of course, in his story, there is a relation to the legendary king before him. But we'll we'll talk about that in the sixth sense. Well, I'm going to definitely uh, get on that. You might have to help me with some some of your sources. I, uh, You have a note at the end of the script here about uh, Thales of Miletus. Oh, look, at, we put him, I moved him too far at the end. We missed uh, Thales. The, all right, let's, let's get him in him. there. 
This will end, will end on Thales. He, this is, um, like I said, these 600s, there's a lot of this stuff that will happen later. They're being born now and they're going to move into, you know, our history. So he's what you call a pre-Socratic philosophers of ancient Greece. He may be the first one. The um, first ones was, were from Miletus. Aristotle calls him the father of Greek philosophy. He's one of the seven sages of Greece. He's very interesting. I'm going to just say a couple of things because he's another one. We could talk about him a little later because he's just born now. So I'll just give you. So he's historically recognized as the first individual in Western civilization known to engage in scientific philosophy. He's recognized for breaking from the use of mythology to explain the world and the universe. I mean, that's really important. I mean, people still freaking do that today. I know. It drives me nuts. But, you know, officially we don't. But like, here we got 600 B.C. He's like, let's explain the world how it is, not like a god and all this other stuff, you know. So um, he's um, almost all the other pre-Socratic philosophers followed him in explaining nature as deriving from a unity of everything based on the existence of a single ultimate substance instead of using mythological explanations. And for Thales, it was water. You know, some have fire, water, earth. And, you know, of course, we go down to the atom and quarks today and stuff. But Thales said, you know, it was water, which is a good point. I mean, everything dissolves in water, right? He's also the first known individual to use deductive reasoning applied to geometry. He's the first known individual to whom a mathematical discovery has been attributed. I think I attributed a mathematical discovery to an Indian in 900 BC, but that was fairly uncertain. All right. Well, you probably could be correct. Maybe he's the first Greek. <laughs> yes. You know, obviously somebody had a mathematical discovery as they built things. It's so I'm just going to leave it out. But Thales, so this one will do it because he predicted the solar eclipse of May 28, 585 BC. He predicted it. Oh, it, it's that solar eclipse, right? Yeah. There's one other thing. He measured the shadow of the pyramids or something. Okay. Yeah. So he did a lot of cool things. Well, let's, let's dwell on that breaking from the use of mythology. That's an enormous achievement. Enormous, really, when you think about it. Probably no one in the world has done that before him. And they, I really think they be really believed it. Like, they really believed in their religion things, you know? Like, they weren't just pragmatic. They, they had to do these rituals. They had to check the portents before you went to battle. You... You went to war for your gods. I just, yeah, well, this is a this is a break. And they say history is. I read. A, I might have posted it too. They, you know, history is is made by inventions by really freaking smart people who then just take. You know, like you need these these spurts of a creativity or genius from just one person. Like somebody invented farming somewhere. Somebody invented metallurgy, fire. Like, you know, this guy started saying, "Hey, we don't have to just have gods." You know, we, maybe there's a natural reason. And then he's a pre-Socratic. And then all these Greek philosophers. Go Thales. Go Thales. Imagine Homo sapiens sapiens has probably been around for 300,000 years when Thales appears. And none of us had thought about this before. Right. I bet somebody did. But maybe nobody wrote about it. So they get smashed in the head with a rock or something. Well, there's a problem if you were like in 60,000 BC and you couldn't write down anything. <laughs> no, you didn't. Some guy said something in 60,000 BC and it just like, made him get trampled by a mammoth. <laughs> <laughs>
we'll end this episode with the 60,000 BC philosopher getting trampled by a mammoth. <laughs> That was a sad day for humanity. It was. You know what? We would be so we'd be in the stars by now. <laughs> yes. He invented writing, and they're like, "No, that's stupid." <laughs> would be in hyperspace by now. Totally, probably a Neanderthal too, and his, their whole race went out. We would be in the Andromeda galaxy. By now. <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, don't let me get going. You know, I'll never stop talking about silly stuff. I'll uh, mention my uh, this the sister podcast to this podcast. I do make a podcast called Fan of Astronomy. It has been on ice for a while, and uh, but uh, it's still there. So you can find Fan of Astronomy, where me and Angelo talk about astronomy, my other great interest. I'll have to check that out myself sometime. I have to be. I have to. I have to apologize. I haven't checked it out, but I'm going to make a note of it to check that out today, for sure. Uh, there was a terror attack on my street in 2017. In one of the episodes, I that just happened. <laughs> I'm no. not talking about it. That doesn't have anything to do with astronomy, but yeah. Also, check out our uh, Facebook and follow me on Instagram, Dan Horning with two dots over the O, where I talk about all my podcasts, and mostly in Swedish, but some English. You could follow the Facebook page, which I manage, and you could send messages there, which I check, and I, I appreciate the guy, you guys who have. Um, people share stuff with me once in a while, and I would, um, you know, please keep it up. I, I enjoy it. When I, I don't really go on Facebook personally, but when I go on, you know, I go on for fan of history, and if I see a message from somebody, I am actually excited. So please don't. I mean, just like, I, you know, we mentioned the Danelli Bellelli podcast. I mean, he's like a really famous guy, too. And I just like, let me message him, see if he'll talk to me. And he did. So I'm not even a famous guy, and I'll definitely talk to you. So <laughs> send me a message. <laughs> also remember our Patreon. That's what keeps us going. Yeah. No, actually, it isn't what keeps us going. It's our enthusiasm. But That's we true. do love a contribution as well. Yes. Patreon slash final history. Yes. I do appreciate it. I'm using the mic that you Patreons bought me. Oh, we did the 620s. So we are moving on to the fall of the Assyrian uh, Empire man, and, and some guys in Italy. Yeah, but man, you've been waiting for this for a long time, haven't you? Eight years. Oh, my gosh. Oh, we'll do a good job on it. Oh, oh, this will be great. Awesome. All right, everybody. And Dan, appreciate it. Nice to talk to you, Dan. Always a pleasure, Bernie. Always a pleasure. Cheers. Cheers. Poor guy getting trampled by a mammoth. Thank you. <laughs> if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.